The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. So we're continuing through our study in Luke's Gospel, and recently we've been seeing how Jesus is constantly pressing in on what it means to follow him. Have you noticed that? What it means to follow him. And he's, all, he's had to correct his disciples, hasn't he? If you were here last week, do you remember what his disciples were doing? Right after he predicts, I'm gonna be crucified, they start arguing about, anybody remember? Who was the greatest? And what, what, a, what a wonderful, <laughs> incredible. They're arguing about who's the greatest. They're getting cocky. They're getting prideful. And so Jesus has to correct them about what it means to follow him. He says, no, humility is true greatness. So he's always correcting his disciples. Not only that, he's always having to challenge the crowd. He's challenging the crowds. As we've been watching, we've seen many, many people are interested in Jesus. They're amazed by his miracles. They're fascinated by his teaching. But so often they fall short of actually committing, actually following him. So he has to confront them constantly. The, the crowds would come and he's just, he's uh, challenging, challenging them starkly. So he's always, he's always having to correct people on what it really means to follow him. And so I just want to ask you as we, as we watch him do this over and over again, why do you think he has to do that? Why do you think it's always a, he's always having to correct his, his followers, challenge the crowd? Well, here's what I came up with. Number one, he's always having to correct us on what it means to follow him because following him is the most important thing there is. There's nothing more important than this, right? Secondly, it's hard to do. It's hard to do. Evidently, it's easy to get this wrong. It's easy to think you're following Jesus when you're not. Or it's easy to actually be following him but then get, get messed up on some things. And so he's gotta bring us back home. I want to share with you something the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Will you read this with me? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So if you trust Christ, if you trusted your life to him, what does Paul say about you? You're a new creation. This old life is gone and you're being transformed. Something new has come. You have a totally new kind of life in Christ. And that's what I think is happening here in Luke. That's what I think we see this morning in Luke. Three aspects of the new life. Three aspects of the new life. So number one, we're gonna look at a new priority when you have new life in Christ. There's a new priority. Number two, we're gonna look at a new attitude that forms you, or I guess a lifestyle that you live, a new attitude. And number three will be a new motivation. What is it that pushes you over the tipping point to where you're in and you're pursuing this new life? So new priority, new, new attitude or lifestyle, new motivation. So we're gonna start with verses 57 to 62. We're gonna start at the last section first and see this new priority. Now, what do you notice, first of all, as we look at Jesus, the strange interaction between Jesus and these three guys? Did you notice a certain word that gets echoed a few times? Verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will, what? Follow you. Verse 59, Jesus says to another guy, hey, follow me. Verse 61, another one said, I will 
follow you. So, hey, biblical scholars, what's this about? Following Jesus. So back in the old days, if you had... Um, if you had a rabbi or a teacher, he would actually kind of be an itinerant preacher and he would go around preaching and, and those who wanted to learn from him, they'd be called disciples and they would follow. And so you'd spend time with him. You'd see how he handled things. You would hear his teaching over and over again. You'd learn and then you'd walk it out. You'd live it out. That's what it meant to be a disciple or to follow. Now, obviously, from Jesus' time here to our time today, there are some things that are different. Jesus is actually there in the flesh, walking on a road, going somewhere, and he's telling people right now, you can come and follow me. And by the way, how many of you would, like to, would, would, would you like to do that? Would you like to go on that hike and to see Jesus and to watch him and to follow him? Well, for you and I today, it's a little different. Where, where is he walking around? Where do we walk to? Well, you don't, we don't follow him that way. We can't. He doesn't intend us to. We follow him together through a local church according to his word, Right? Listening to what he has to say, uh, knowing who he is, living out the life he has for us according to his word. But nonetheless, following or being a disciple is kind of the major picture of being a Christian in the New Testament, isn't it? Look at this little nugget from Acts eleven twenty six. Acts eleven twenty six. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called what? Christians. What was the major term for people who loved Jesus and wanted to live for him? First, disciple, follower, listener. That's the major term. And then they were so wrapped up in Jesus, evidently one city was like, hey, we, we know what you guys are. You're Christians, Christians. You're, you're all about this Christ guy. You follow him so much, we're gonna name you after him. But the heartbeat of Christianity, you see, is what? Following. Listening, learning, obeying, walking it out. How's that different from an impression sometimes you get from Christianity these days? Can't you get the, the impression that if you prayed a prayer one time, um, back when you were 11, like that was it? Now listen, I'm not demeaning if you, if you prayed a prayer one time and you gave your life to Christ, I'm not demeaning that at all. But that's, that's not the end, right? That's the beginning, and so the, the, real, the real heart of it is a life of faith, a life of following. And that's, that's what this kind of text reminds us of. Okay, what did you notice as Jesus is interacting with these guys, these first three guys? Two of them say, hey, I want to follow you. And remember what Jesus says to them? It's kind of surprising, right? Did you expect Jesus to talk like this? Hey, Jesus, I want to follow you. But first, let me go... Uh, let me go bury my dad. And he's like, let the dead bury their own dead. Sh it's shocking, right? It's, it's, it seems like a smack in the face or, hey, I'll follow you wherever you go. And then Jesus says to the first guy, no, you probably won't. We don't, uh, we don't expect Jesus to talk like this. What's going on? What is happening? Well, you know, this is one of those texts where um, if, if you've never been to Fountain of Life before, we usually preach through books of the Bible. We like to kind of let the Bible pick our agenda. So we just, we're preaching through Luke. And if I was gonna be really honest with you today, uh, if I was not preaching through Luke, I don't know if I would ever choose this passage. And maybe you can understand why. Why wouldn't I choose this passage? 
It seems too harsh. It seems too hard. It seems too hard to understand. Is Jesus pushing people away? Uh, What's going on? How are we to understand this? So I want to handle this carefully, but I don't want to soften what Jesus is saying, right? I mean, it's a, a big conviction for us is this is God's word, right? Uh, at some point, you need, to, you need to hear what's in here. I need to hear this. So what is Jesus saying? Well, first of all, do you think we're supposed to read this in a way where we take it absolutely literalistically, like we take these words to heart? Imagine what that would mean, okay? Jesus, I want to follow you. Well, you have to be homeless, Jesus, I want to follow you. You can't go to any family funerals. Jesus, I want to follow you. Uh, You can't ever say goodbye to your family when you leave. Okay? Is that what he means? Does that sound like the rest of the New Testament? Is that what we're talking about? If if that's what he means, how many of you are actually Christians? (laughs) I'm not a Christian, if that's what he means. So there's something situational about the time that we're supposed to learn from. But let me, just, let me just drop this on you real quick. If that was what he meant, let's say we knew it. Let's say we knew that's what he meant. You couldn't live in your house. Uh, you, had to say, you couldn't say goodbye. You couldn't go to family funerals. Let's just say that was what he meant. It's not. But let's say it was. Would you rather have him? Would you take the deal? Hard deal, but would you take the deal? I'm thinking of my friend uh, Vijay Misala. Some of you have met him. He's a church planner in Southeast India. And it's really hard to be a Christian there right now. You literally might lose your house if you're a Christian there right now. Um, There are people in Syria, right, who have made this choice. Uh, I can go with Jesus and lose everything and get killed, or I can not. You know, in America where we have such freedom, right, and we have kind of some Christian background, it's, it's easier to be a Christian. And to be honest with you, I'm kind of happy about that. Aren't you glad you didn't have to worry about your safety, you know, when you came here today? But, but here's the part that's difficult is how do you know whether or not you're fake? In a hard situation, it's easier to know you're, whether you're fake or not. When kind of everybody's cool with it, you you kind of have to wonder. And so Jesus here, isn't, isn't this a test of treasure? What do you love the most? Is it me? Is it me? Uh, first thing I want, to, I want you to see as we get into what Jesus is saying to these guys is Jesus' unique knowledge. Jesus' unique knowledge of the heart. Look at these four verses here. Luke 151, 522, 68, Luke 11, 17. Luke 151, he scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. So what's Jesus gonna do to kind of your inner thinking? You're gonna get confronted sometimes, right? Your pride's gonna get exposed. You're gonna get humbled. He's gonna mess with your inner thoughts, your values. Luke 522, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, Luke 6, 8, when he, he knew their thoughts, Luke eleven seventeen, 17, knowing their thoughts, hey, what does Jesus know? Your thoughts, okay? He knows things about you you don't know about you. He sees you naked. He sees you. Um, I don't know your thoughts. I'm not even totally fluent in my own, okay? But Jesus knows what's going on in people's hearts. So that's a big thing to keep in your pocket for this passage because he knows the issue with each one of these guys. He knows what their stumbling block is, what their obstacle is. He knows exactly what to say to them in a unique way that I wouldn't know, that, that you might not know. But Jesus knows, and that helps us see what he's, what he's doing. 
Because listen, this is what I'd say. I think these guys are flirting with following. Flirting with following. You know what it means to flirt, right? It's to act like I'm really interested in you. It's to act like I'm really interested in you. But if I'm just flirting, am I really interested in you? Maybe, right? Maybe. You ever flirted with somebody you weren't really interested in? You ever flirted with somebody you weren't really gonna commit to? Okay. These guys are flirting with following, and Jesus knows that. And so we really learn from this. Verse 57, they're going along the road. Someone says to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Verse 58, Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds have their nests. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So he gives this great irony as the son of man, that's from Daniel, right? So this is this huge prophetic title Jesus has, the promised divine son of God, king of the universe. And what's so ironic about this, the most amazing person who've ever lived, where does he stay at night? He has nowhere to live. He's an itinerant preacher, he's poor, and he lives on other people's generosity. And as we're gonna see in a later story, right, he tries to go into a city, and who's gonna let him stay with him? Nobody. So where's Jesus, the son of man, sleeping that night? He's behind a irony of, of who he is versus how he's living is so stark. And so this guy says to him, hey, I wanna follow you. And Jesus says, I think you love your living room. The guy freezes. Jesus says, you'll lose your comfort. And I know what you love most. It's not me. It's your comfort. And so here's the take home for us, right? If you love your comfort more than you love Jesus, you might flirt, but you won't follow. So now what are you and I supposed to do with this? I don't know if you love comfort more than Jesus. I know I struggle with that sometimes. America's a comfortable place to live. But we have to ask ourselves, right? If I have this new life, who's my new priority? If you're alive in Christ, guess who your new priority is? It's Jesus. Even over comfort? Yeah. So questions like this, would you be willing to give up your comfort if you had to, to be faithful to Jesus? Or questions like this, do you ever sacrifice somehow your comfort for his kingdom and what he's doing in the world? To love your neighbor, to serve the poor, to share the gospel. But it's there, right? And here's the thing for, for American Christians, it's so easy for this good thing, thank God for comfort, it's so easy for this good thing to become an ultimate thing where it's like I could have Jesus as a hobby on the side, but what I really like is comfort. And so Jesus is asking you, am I your priority? Do you love me more than comfort? Those who have new life in Christ, they love him first. He's their priority. Look at the second guy, verse 59. Do another, he said, follow me. Now just put yourself in that guy's shoes. And it's one thing for me to say to somebody, hey, you need to give your life to Christ, man. But can you imagine if Jesus was there, right there in front of you, right there, Jesus himself, and he looked you in the eye and said, follow me. You can come with me. You can live with me. Hey, man, I'll camp with Jesus when he's camping on the side of the road, right? 
follow me. Can you imagine the honor of like being able to walk with him and listen to him and see what he's doing? Follow me. And what's the guy say? Verse 59. Let me go bury my father. Now, this one's tough for us, right? Because it's like Jesus says after this, let the dead go bury their own dead. And you're like, that's not nice. Well, most likely, okay, most likely, listen, in the ancient world, when somebody died, you don't wait till next week to bury them. Are you catching on? Why, okay? We don't have refrigerated morgues and all that stuff. When somebody dies, what do you need to do pretty quick? You need to bury them, okay? Commentators, everybody say, most likely, this dude's dead. He's not dead. He's still alive. Let me go bury my father is a phrase that some people say is even still used today. It means, let me wait till I get my inheritance. Because see, when my dad finally kicks it, the money rolls over, then I'll have what I need, and I'll be all set. And then once I'm all set with what I really value, money, then I'll follow you, Jesus. And Jesus basically says, you're still dead. What's the issue with this guy? He values money over Jesus. He values money over Jesus. And so that's the next thing. You might be interested in following Jesus, but if you love money more than Jesus, you'll flirt, but you won't follow. So again, that question, how do you know if you love money more than Jesus? How do you know? It's, it's, not, an easy, it's not an easy one to answer. How do you know? But here's the thing, if it came to money or Jesus, what would you pick? I mean, some people, they, they have that choice with their careers. They realize, hey, this, this thing my job is asking me to do or this career, it's not honoring Jesus the way I should. I, maybe I need a different career. I make less money. That happens. I know, I know people where that's happened. You have to make a choice. Am I, am I living for money, 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 and then Jesus is like a hobby on the side, or am I living for Jesus, 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 and I use money for his purposes? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Another way, the, the only way to know whether... The only way I know whether or not I'm living for money is, do, will I give any to his kingdom and his purposes? Uh, do I give money to support justice issues or, um, or to care for the poor, or missionaries, or local church, or anything like that? Like, what do I, would my checkbook show me that Jesus is my first love? Okay, by the way, I'm not demeaning like supporting for your family. That is loving the Lord, Right? He wants you to support your family. I'm not demeaning saving money for retirement, okay? You're, you're loving others by not making them have to take care of you when you're old, okay? But you know the difference, right? What does our culture lean towards? What does everything in our culture want to be like? Oh, this is what you need to be happy. It's going to be money. And so Jesus is asking each one of us this question. Do you love me most or do you love money? Because if you love money, you might flirt, but you won't follow Look at the last guy. Verse 61, another guy says, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, this might sound the, the sharpest. He's like, I just wanna go home and say goodbye, and Jesus is like, nope. <laughs> really? Well, again, I, I'm gonna give Jesus the benefit of the doubt that he knows this man's thoughts, and I want to think with you about Jesus' response to him. What does he say? 
No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So have any of you done any uh, plowing, like with a cow and a, I don't even know what it's called. I've never done any plowing. I have no, con- I have no idea. But evidently, okay, you can probably imagine you're trying to plow. Don't you want those lines straight, right? You want them straight so you can plant as many seeds as possible. If you're looking back the whole time when you're trying to walk straight, I don't even think I'll walk straight on this stage if I look back. What's going to happen to my plowing if I'm looking back? It's going to be a mess. It won't work. I won't get the job done. I won't be focused. Come on, if you've done anything in life, the only way you can do it well, the only way you can be your best is to what? It's to be right there. It's to be all in. It's to give it what you have. And so Jesus is saying to this guy, I think this is what's happening. You would try to follow me, but who are you really following? Because this guy would always be looking back. Who really runs this man's life? It's relationships at home. It's relationships at home. Look what Jesus says after this. Anybody who puts his hand to the plow and looks back, it's not fit for the kingdom. What does that mean? Well, let's just unpack it. Kingdom, what does that mean? Who's there? Kingdom. Help me out. King. Dumb. Who's king? Jesus is king. You know that, right? To be a Christian is to have Jesus as your king, as your Lord, as your Lord. He's, he's a savior because he's Lord. He's, he's Lord because he saved you. They go together. Jesus is your Lord. How many lords can you have? How many kings can you have? You could say you have two kings. You could say you have two lords. How many can you actually have? One, because of the nature of that relationship, right? King means I follow you, I love you, I listen to you. And that means I don't listen to everybody else in the same way. And so Jesus is saying to this guy, you're not fit for the kingdom because I'm not really your king. Somebody at home is still your king. What your dad wants is still your king. Your girlfriend's still your king. What people, your social group think about you, that's still your king. What you're, what you're living for over there, that's still your king. I'm not your king yet. You're just flirting. And so what's the question for me and you? Who's your king? Who do you want to please the most? And are you willing to have other relationships play, get demoted because Jesus is your primary? Now now listen, a lot of, you know, is Jesus gonna tell me to abandon my kids and leave my wife so that he can be everything to me? No, not even close. Not even close. In fact, Jesus is not gonna cut me off from those relationships. He's gonna push me deeper in, isn't he? Instead of my wife like being my idol, I'm now here as a husband for his sake. That's gonna change everything about how I forgive, how I talk, how I relate to her, right? But ultimately, I mean, I believe this, I love my wife better when I'm serving Jesus, right? So it, it transforms those relationships. It doesn't end them. It transforms them. It makes them better. I'm a better father when I'm following Jesus. So can he transform the relationships that you have? But there's also the issue of um, what if your other relationships don't want you to be a Christian? Millions of people have faced that. Whereas if you follow Jesus, you're gonna receive rejection 
from one group or another. And that's gonna put serious pressure on you to not follow him. And so sometimes there is that question, right, on who do you love the most? Who's your priority? If you love what other people think more than Jesus, you'll flirt, but you won't follow. Do you see what Jesus is saying? When you have the new life, I'm your ultimate priority. I'm your ultimate priority. I just want to ask you, is Jesus being mean? Is he being mean? Is he a jerk? It can feel, it can feel that way. It can feel burdensome. It can feel heavy. Uh, ladies, how would you feel if your boyfriend was like, hey, will you marry me? And I want to marry Samantha too. Are you all down for that? Or are you like, are you going to hit him in the nose at that point? I don't know. I just pulled Samantha out of there. I don't know anybody named Samantha. <laughs> or fellas, fellas, okay? You're, this lady says to you, I want to give you my life. I am all about you and Steve. <laughs> Again, I don't know about Steve. Uh, fellas, are you down for that? Anybody like, oh, wow, this is great, okay? You're all like, no, no, no. I'm about to get violent, right? No. No, okay? Why would we expect the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the most loving person ever, the creator of the universe, the one for whom everything is all about, to be like, yeah, have me as your king and worship money too? He's not a boyfriend. He's a husband. He's not a spiritual advisor. He's a savior. He's not a hobby. He's the treasure and so Jesus is telling these people these things because he cares about their happiness. Because if you take a good thing and you make it an ultimate thing, that thing will not satisfy you. Your comfort will not satisfy you. Come on. We're the most comfortable nation on earth and we're depressed and we're lonely and we're suicidal and it's ugly. Your money won't satisfy you. Come on, there's story after story of people with all the money in the world. Their life is meaningless and hopeless. Come on, it won't satisfy you. Your relationships are all going to end. People who are codependent make idols out of one another. It never goes good. We've seen this a million times. A good thing cannot be your ultimate thing. And Jesus is saying, here's the loving truth. I'm the only one worthy of being your ultimate. This is his love. This is his love. The only way to enjoy everything that I am is if I am everything. And so this is just that kind of, that question for Christians, for people who are looking at Christianity. Is Jesus your priority? And let me hear, let, let, me, let me say this. Please hear this. I don't always perfectly live like Jesus is my priority. Does, any, does anybody do that? You're always doing it perfectly. Nobody's doing it perfectly, okay? We all stumble and we all fall. But we do have to, am I on the road to him being my ultimate? Am I taking steps to where he is my ultimate? Or is, this, or is there this real thing in my life where it's like I'm kind of interested in Jesus, but if I was honest, I'd live for this instead. And that's where we have to look at ourselves and look at who Jesus is. Wrap up the first point. Okay, listen up. When you're a Christian, you have a new life, who's your priority? Jesus. Comfort? Jesus. Money? Jesus. Any other relationship? Jesus. That's a new priority. Let's look at the new lifestyle now. Verse 51. 
the new attitude, the new lifestyle. Verse 51, when the days were near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him and went and entered a village of the Samaritans. Now, what do you remember about Samaritans? Samaritans and Jews, they don't get along. There's racial issues. Samaritans would have, according to the Jews, like mixed blood with pagans. So there's racial issues. There's religious conflict. The Samaritans say, no, you're wrong about who you worship. The Jews say, no, you're wrong about who you worship. Jews considered Samaritans to be dirty. If you went into their village, you'd be unclean. You don't wanna share food utensils with them. So there's a stark line between these two groups of people. They do not like or appreciate one another. Which is why it's so amazing that Jesus, a Jewish teacher, where does he want to go and hang out? A Samaritan village. I mean, this is just, this is a picture of the gospel, right? Who is Jesus for? White people, black people, rich people, poor people, Hispanics, uh, Asians, Indonesians, people with checkered past, tax collectors, prostitutes, religious teachers. Who, who needs Jesus? All of them. And who, who's welcome to come to Jesus Everybody, I love it. So Jesus is going to the Samaritans. But in this case, how do the Samaritans treat him? We don't want you here. We don't want you here. They don't want Jesus to come. Isn't that, isn't that just terrible? Isn't that awful? Jesus came to save sinners, to satisfy them in who, they, in who he is. And how often are people like, I don't want it. I don't want it. So then you get this great interaction uh, with the disciples. And that's really what the picture of this text is about. Look at verse 54. When the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, <laughs> I mean, we laughed when it was red, right? Lord, you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? It's like, hey, can I, you know, can I be Gandalf for a moment, you know? Like Harry Potter and just be like, wah! You know, get the emperor on and just, the whole, just, you know, light up the whole city. And you're like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? What's going on? Well, let's try to get in their minds a little bit. Remember, we just did the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, and Jesus showed people who he was. Who was there with him, you remember? Moses and Elijah. Okay, if you ever read stories about Elijah, if you've never read those, go home and read them. For kings, go, it's, it's entertaining stuff. But Elijah has this thing with fire, okay? He does, he has this thing with fire. You remember the, uh, the God competition up on the mountain? The prophets of Baal, you have your altar. We'll have this altar. We'll pour all this water. Can your God make fire? No, but what Elijah prays and what happens? Boom, fire. Or there's another story. Elijah preaches against uh, this king of Israel and the king of Israel hated it. And so we sent an army of 50 people to come arrest and take Elijah. And you remember what Elijah says? It's in 2 Kings. Hey, hey, man of God, come down. Elijah says, if I'm a man of God, let fire consume you. Boom, 50 guys. Then the king, I don't think he's paying attention, sends another group of 50. We're gonna take you down, man of God. If I'm a man of God, let fire consume you. Boom, second time. Then the king sends a third group, not paying attention. Sends a third group. Well, this guy in charge of the 50, he's catching on. He crawls on his face and he's like, please don't smoke us. And then Elijah goes with him. But we just saw Elijah. And what does Elijah go with? Fire. Fire stands for God's judgment, right? Honest question. Did the Samaritans deserve God's judgment? They have rejected Jesus Christ. Yeah? Does God want his people, does Jesus want his people going around raining down God's judgment on people? 
Because, man, I've met a lot of Christians who think this is God's calling on their life, is to bring down his judgment. And when John says to Jesus, you want me to call down fire on him, what does Jesus do? He rebukes him. Remember the story in the boat with all the waves, the wind and the waves, and the disciples are afraid? What did Jesus do to the storm, remember? He rebukes it. Shut up. Knock it off. Stop. The storm did it. Guess what he says to his disciples here? Hey, can we bring down fire on them? Shut up. Stop. You don't even get it. What is this about? What is this about? Jesus when you have a new life in him and you know him, he demands an attitude of mercy towards others. Mercy towards others. Remember Luke 6, 35? Jesus told us all this. He told his disciples this. Luke 6, 35, they forgot. You ever forget what Jesus tells you? All the time. That's why we come to church, right? That's one reason. I forgot. Throughout the week, I forgot everything. Tell me again. Luke 6, 35. You see it? Luke 6.35. I love you. Luke 6.35. Help me. Um, can somebody bring down fire on the tech booth? I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. Luke 6.35. Love your enemies. Oh, man. Hey, don't you love the people in the tech booth? It's a hard job. Give them a hand. By the way, I just got to tell you, I was at a conference with like 5,000 people, and guess what got messed up? The overheads. It made me feel so good about myself. What did Jesus say, Luke 6, 35? Love your enemies. And what? Do good. Lend, expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Verse 36, be what? Merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. Be merciful. So you see in your heart, you want Jesus to be the priority, and towards others, you wanna live with an attitude or a lifestyle of Mercy, mercy. When should a Christian get revenge? Never. When should you be harsh, obnoxious, cruel, judgmental, self-righteous? Never. You see in this compassion for others and their need, that's what mercy is, in a willingness to meet it, a serving with kindness, forgiveness rather than bitterness, gentleness. Look at Titus 3, verse 2. Titus 3, verse 2. There Paul writes, remind them, that's Christians, to speak evil of who? No one. Just plug that in. That would be enough application for one week, wouldn't it? Speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling. To be what? Gentle. And to show perfect courtesy towards all people. It's an attitude of mercy. It's an attitude of mercy. Does it mean we don't tell the truth? No. It means we do it in a gentle, courteous, humble way. Verse three, why would we want to show mercy to others? 
Look at verse three. He's talking to Christians, right? We ourselves were once foolish. How did God treat us? Kindly, with mercy. We ourselves were once disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's who we were. We still follow and do it sometimes. Look at verse four. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of our works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Let's just, let's just emphasize to us again, I don't care how many times you've gone to church, I don't, know, I don't care how, much, how many times you've read your Bible, how much you've given, how many acts of charity, how much anything, nobody here can stand before God on their own performance. Nobody here is good enough under that standard. I am so short of it. I'm infinitely short of it. There's one way we get saved, and Edie, that he steps in and acts towards. I'm saved by mercy, which means in the way I relate to others, I need to have an attitude of what? Mercy, mercy. In the new life, Jesus is the new priority. And the new lifestyle or the new attitude is mercy. And let's just end with this, our new motivation. You know, Jesus does talk about fire in Luke. Look at Luke 12, 49. Luke 12, 49. I came to what? Cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. Then he says this weird line, 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. What are you talking about? Cast fire, baptism. Mark 38 helps us out. Look at Mark 10, I'm sorry, Mark 10, 38. Mark 10, 38. Again, the disciples are arguing about how great they are. In that conversation, Mark 10, 38, Jesus says this. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What's he talking about? This is what he's talking about, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to do what? Give his life as a ransom for many. You guys, here's the amazing truth. Jesus did not come to cast fire on others. He came to take the fire for others. The baptism he's talking about is the cross where he takes upon himself the wrath and justice of God that I deserve, that you deserve, in our place as a ransom. He bought you there on the cross. The, the, the currency that he paid to save you and to have you as his own was his very blood on the cross. He took the fire for you. I'm the Samaritan that's rejected him. I don't want you here. I don't want you in charge. Go away. That's me. I deserved the fire. And Jesus went into the fire for me. That's you if you've trusted yourself to him. And now we see how it all wraps up. When Jesus says, I need to be your priority, you realize he's saying this in light of, well, what kind of a priority did he make saving you? You know, he could have said, I'd, I'd rather have a nice house than die on a cross for your sorry behind. I'd rather kick it in my comfort than come and suffer for sins I didn't even commit. 
but I'm gonna come and humble myself and suffer and die on a cross to win you, to win your forgiveness, to win your adoption as a child of God, to give you all my inheritance, my kingdom, the new earth I'm gonna make, everything God is. He, he made that a priority in ways that we can't even comprehend. He went to a cross for it. Can you, can you prioritize a king like that who has loved you with such mercy? Are you gonna, really gonna look at that and say, I'd rather have a couple hundred, hundred you know? No. Can you, can, can you see how that motivates you to show mercy to others? When you're amazed by his mercy for you, that's the new motivation, folks. It's the mercy of God and what he's done for you on the cross of Jesus Christ. I just hope each one of you can see that in a new way as we look at this. That as you hear the call to discipleship of Jesus saying, the only way to do this is when I'm your treasure. The only way to do this is when I'm your king. That you could see this is a king who died for you and who made you his treasure. And this is a king who's shown you mercy. And it's his mercy that makes it a joy to show mercy to others. That's the new life, right? That's the new life. Jesus is the priority. We live in mercy because we've been shown so much mercy. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.fountainoflifefellowship.com.